welcome to the 22nd episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast for people who like history and politics and popular culture and women talking about those things. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London. And this is our episode on eugenics. Um, and we're sort of, we're pre-recording this because I am officially on parental leave as as we will be releasing this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but eugenics is something that we've kind of touched upon on a few of the episodes that we've already released so far. I remember talking about it when we we talked about pregnant bodies. Yes, definitely. Uh, in autumn before last, one of our first episodes. I think we also mentioned it a bit in our Imperial Nostalgia episode, yes. which is by far our most popular episode. Um, so it might be handy. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a complicated topic, though. Why are you interested? How... So I, when you suggested that we did the podcast episode on this, initially I thought, well, I don't know anything about eugenics. Um, but then <laughs> I realised that actually it is a topic, I mean, it's a topic I find interesting, but it's also a topic that relates a lot to the work that I do. Um, British imperialism has always had uh, elements within it of particularly racial thinking mm. about who about sort of dividing up the population of the world in different ways and normally in hierarchies and that has some really um, kind of critical eugenic thinking underpinning it and particularly ideas about uh, competing ideas about what determines race Mm. uh, and increasingly sort of scientific arguments for that Mm. so eugenics comes into that quite a lot and then the other work that I do um, on the left and the history of the British left um, we're often reminded sometimes by people on the left of the political spectrum, sometimes by people on the right of the political spectrum, that the British left has a fairly murky past when it relates to eugenics mm. and particularly some some groups within the left. Um, when I kind of did a quick Google to see how this had been covered, there are lots and lots and lots of articles across the political spectrum, from the New Statesman to uh, Guido Fawkes' Order Order <laughs> blog, talking about kind of the history of eugenics and the British left. Yeah. So it kind of comes into my research. And I suppose actually the humanitarianism work that I work on. Yeah. There are, you know, often concerns actually about how humanitarianism and development might either sort of promote eugenic thinking or feed into debates about eugenics. Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of eugenics, the whole core concept is about population and population growth. So Mm -hmm. it does, it is relevant to the left and racists yeah how does it fit into your research (laughs) um it fits in quite nicely but weirdly it's uh, (laughs) and unfortunately um i so as i've said before i study mostly sweden and south africa or i did at least during my phd Mm -hmm. and both sweden and south africa have eugenic pasts but in very different ways and it in completely um well, I think a lot of people would be very surprised to find that Sweden did negative eugenics, so population control by actually removing the ability to have children, mm. um, whereas South Africa didn't. South Africa is, is obviously, you know, the apartheid state is incredibly racist and mm-hmm. hierarchical um, and believes in a lot of these racial theories that kind of got their pseudo-scientific mm-hmm. reasoning through eugenic research Mm -hmm. um but they didn't do anything about population control in that way not Mm -hmm. at least where it concerns the white population so improving the stock of the the Mm -hmm. white population Mm -hmm. there is work being done um there's particularly really good work being done by kate law who's in Mm. nottingham on the use of uh depo provera yes which is this long-lasting um injectable yeah uh, contraceptive method that was used in South Africa in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. um, and in India as well I think yeah um, which is and you know quite often was used on women who weren't didn't know what was happening to yeah. them they were just getting like a vitamin shot mm-hmm. and then it turns out that they can't have any kids mm-hmm. for years and years um, so but in the Swedish context it's to do with social democracy so it's yeah. that left wing perspective again on mm-hmm. Um, getting people to act according to the rule book, be good citizens, good productive citizens. Mm-hmm. So 
for the, shall we do a bit of history of eugenics? I mean, I actually taught idea. a module on this at you Queen did. Mary <laughs> two years ago, which I think was probably the most difficult module mm-hmm. any of my students ever took. <laughs> I think, to be fair, there were a few of them who probably thought that we were just going to be covering Nazis, because mm-hmm. that's what most people think about. So eugenics yeah. and race hygiene obviously go yeah. hand in hand. And that's sometimes, I think, one of the things that's hampered the discussion of eugenics as an issue. Because it's immediately associated with um, the Nazi party and with the idea of um, forcible sterilisations and kind of that kind of very, very um, sort of obvious and interventionist kind of racial, I mean, race war, essentially. Yeah, the final solution is obviously the final step in a eugenic programme. And and with the idea, I think a lot of people, when they think about it, historically think about it in terms of kind of very active and intentional enforced state control. Mm. So it's about uh, removing what would be considered kind of negative attributes from the gene pool. And obviously for the Nazis, that was often like entire groups of people. But obviously, historically, it's had just as many... There have been just as many ways in which this has been used to talk about, say, birth control um, and encouraging other people to have children. It's not necessarily about just just these kind of enforceable things Mm. that we talk about. It's often about kind of much broader discussions. Yeah, Still all, you know... I don't do I need to say still all definitely terrible and bad but you know much much wider discussion Should we do a about... whole content warning about this yes, so this I is complicated probably. and complex and not something that we endorse yes I think that's <laughs> hopefully clear but um yes but there so... is I mean so the the broad in broad general terms there's positive eugenics and negative eugenics mm-hmm. and positive eugenics is trying to improve the lives of the population so that they are healthier mm-hmm. so that includes stuff like getting free milk in schools yeah um maternity care yeah i which mean is, you know mostly beneficial right yeah i mean the quite recent uh, british government program where pregnant women got vouchers for fresh fruit and vegetables yeah eugenics policy yeah it's about uh, making pregnant women healthier and making their children healthier yeah um there's also i mean st- having grown up in sweden there's loads of things that basically have eugenic roots like mm-hmm. we went were sent to the dentist mm-hmm. whilst in school so like as a class mm-hmm. we went to yeah. the dentist and were taught how to brush our teeth properly yeah because the idea is that you shouldn't be able to open your mouth and for people to see what class you come from you should all all sweets have good teeth mm. so there's loads of of little things that sort of surround us i feel like these days we mostly associate or maybe we don't even associate it with but it's mostly present in maternity care yes and i think a little bit i've recently discovered um the sort of guidelines for um diabetes Mm. has been Mm -hmm. have not been updated despite the fact that there's new research showing that so people who are diabetic, this comes from a Tom Watson interview in The Guardian yes, in the autumn, yeah. <laughs> where he, he has apparently sort of combated his uh, type 2 diabetes. Yeah, this is can... a Labour politician, yeah. Tom Watson, um, by sticking very rigidly to a diet and exercise scheme, and he's lost loads of weight. But he was saying that he's actually read all of the research, mm-hmm. and quite a lot of it goes against the NHS guidelines. Yes. And one bit of it is that the NHS guidelines tell you to to um, always choose the low-fat option, mm-hmm. which is quite often not the low-sugar option. In, quite, in fact, it's quite often very high in sugar. Yeah. Because fat and sugar are what make food delicious. Yeah. And if you take one of them out, you're probably compensating with the other. Yeah. So and it's... but And that makes me feel like it's more about teaching people healthy eating habits... Yes. ...than actually combating the disease. And, of course, a moral judgment. Yeah. Because low-fat... You know, there's because of the connections between weight and diabetes, mm. it's been very difficult for the NHS to have conversations about this because the NHS policies on dealing with people who are overweight have often been very regressive and have, are often very much wound up in a lot of moral language, yeah. right? There's a lot of moral judgment about people who are overweight and it's assumed that... I mean, obviously, in, in, in diabetes, there is a connection between weight mm. and the illness, but that doesn't mean it's irreversible and it also doesn't necessarily mean well this is type 2 diabetes specifically type 2 diabetes it you know it doesn't well one it's reversible but also i do i do feel like that kind of tendency saying you have to have low fat food 
mm. rather than actually being more explicit about what it is that you need to try to avoid yeah. um, is a kind of knee-jerk moral reaction as much as a yeah as much as a practical and i feel that that's something that i've recently also as we record this i'm still pregnant Mm -hmm. um it's something that you come across when it comes to maternity care as well that there's there is newer research out there that Mm -hmm. shows other things but you are still being told absolutely um there's like very small minor details again about diets Mm -hmm. is that the official British guidelines changed earlier this year, mm-hmm. so earlier 2018, um, from saying that pregnant women should avoid raw eggs to saying that it's okay as long as they're lion stamped. Mm-hmm. But the NHS hasn't updated its mm. booklets, so they still say that you should avoid it all, but the official recommendation is that it's no longer necessary. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a, such a small minor thing, but it can be an incredible faff because there's a lot yeah. of raw, raw eggs well, also, it's, it's, indicati- <laughs> it's indicative of the idea that pregnant women... I mean, we talked about this on our pregnancy episode, right? But it's yeah. indicative of the idea, firstly, that pregnant women's desires and, and wants don't really matter. Mm. That it doesn't matter that, for example, there is literally no research that shows that one to three glasses of wine a week has any problem for your baby. Mm. But the assumption is it's better just to go without because, you know, the fact that you might want a glass of wine is irrelevant right you're supposed to be you are essentially treated by the nhs once you're pregnant as an incubator for the baby and the entire point is about the baby and it doesn't matter and you're you know the idea that a pregnant woman might say well i like a soft boiled egg for breakfast Mm. so the guidelines should be updated so that i know that that's okay Mm. you know that's that is apparently unreasonable yeah pregnant women should be happy with the idea that they can have a hard-boiled egg because their baby is more important exactly so i think there's it's it's toxoplasmosis in in raw meat that we are meant to be avoiding but it then turns out that it's incredibly rare it doesn't really exist in beef Mm. yeah so we should be able to eat raw beef i mean i'm not saying that i want to but we should be able to but there's a blanket ban on any red meat whatsoever or any sort of semi-rare in france as well because the right to have a rare steak is immutable in france um (laughs) because also toxoplasmosis is also what you get from changing cat litter trays Mm. a lot of pregnant women i know are very happy that the guidelines say you can't change cat litter trays it is a rare you know can't do any gardening either for that same reason important window in your life when you're able to just avoid cat litter trays entirely um, but in France, you are tested at the beginning of your pregnancy to see if you have a immunity to toxoplasmosis. Oh. And if you do, then you're allowed to just continue as normal. And this nice. is just standard testing. Yeah, and apparently most of us are immune because exactly. we've all been exposed to it somehow. Yeah. I mean, the reason it's so dangerous is because it's, although it is extremely rare, like listeria, it is very rare, but it's something that can cross yeah. the... The, um, the loss of a baby. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it can also it can cro- it can go it cross it can be transmitted through the umbilical cord. Mm. So the fact that it's super rare, you know, it's there are other things which are which are more common but not as dangerous to pregnant women because yeah. or not as not not as dangerous to pregnant women not as dangerous to fetuses mm. because they can't cross the barrier. So there's you know there's a reason why this is a, an issue. Yeah, and I have to confess that I've stuck quite rigidly to the guidelines both times. I mean, I have loosened up my egg ban <laughs> this time. <laughs> Because I follow the official recommendations, not the booklet that probably yeah. was updated before. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is there is a point to the fact that we want mm-hmm. to have the babies that we're pregnant with. Of course. Um, so you are more likely to listen to the advice. I mean, the way in which this... The way in which, you know, on the face of it, positive eugenics... Um, and again, that's not positive as in good, that's positive as in, like, doing something, interventionist rather than in, removing yeah, something. Yeah, improving, I yeah. suppose, is the core aim of positive eugenics on the face of it many of this stuff is positive and it leads to a better quality of life for pregnant women so for example the fact that the fabian society has often been indicated historically in eugenics Mm. one of the reasons why that's the case not the only reason but one of the reasons why historically that's the case is because they wanted to improve the quality of life for working class communities Mm. and so thinking about these things you know how do you of course you know working class babies at the beginning of the 20th century were born into incredibly unpleasant conditions Mm. and often you know very for example you know their growth was very stunted they were very unhealthy from birth they had a there was a very high incidence of under five mortality Mm. you know so a lot of the time this is about it comes from good intentions the reason that this is so problematic obviously is firstly because it well, firstly, because it goes hand in hand with negative eugenics, but also mm. because it's about improving 
particular group's quality of life. Yeah. Often because of concern about a, partic- a particular race, right? The, the, the health of the race. Yeah. So the reason that the Fabian Society found purchase with these ideas at the beginning of the 20th century is because the Boer War in Britain made everyone very anxious about the idea that working class boys were not growing up healthy and strong. Mm. Um, they were being called up to, to fight in the Boer War and they were, weren't able to be conscripted because they were all short and malnourished. And that wasn't a problem for the state in and of itself. They didn't necessarily care about working class young men. What they cared about was that the white British race was therefore being undermined yeah. and wasn't able to go around the world maintaining empire. They could, Yeah, they couldn't fight the South African soldiers the tall strapping healthy south african boars yeah so it's i mean there's 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 real problems with this that you know that obviously that we've highlighted that you know it's really interventionist and it's really problematic for the way that it conceives of pregnant women's agency Mm. but the roots are also really problematic because fundamentally what it was about was protecting making sure that there was a strong healthy white race yeah and and that's why in sweden it's a thing right because it's about maintaining this scandinavian purity yeah partly that i mean that so there's two strands of of uh, scandinavian eugenics one of them is very much about race hygiene mm-hmm. and that is a much more conservative there was a state sponsored institute for race hygiene in mm-hmm. sweden in the early 20th century late 19th and early 20th century which has done quite a lot of obviously extreme damage to minority populations there is an indigenous population called the sami who live mm-hmm. in the north um, and there's also a large historic Roma minority mm. who have been in Sweden since like the 16th century, which mm-hmm. is longer than I think I have any claim for Swedish mm-hmm. background. Um, and both of those groups were targeted quite massively by researchers from the Institute of Race Hygiene. Mm-hmm. So they've had their skulls. A whole, the whole thing about measuring skulls and phrenology, determining phrenology is, is a yeah. Swedish invention. Mm-hmm. So there's archives with thousands of photographs, really mm-hmm. invasive, mm-hmm. full nude frontity, front and back um, photos taken of every single person in mm-hmm. these communities, including school children, mm. who were often sent to, by the state, particularly with the Sami population, they were sent to boarding schools where they mm-hmm. were meant to become Swedish rather than Sami. They're like so they're the, away um, from their families. Like the Canadian residential schools. Yeah. And actually, like in Australia, the um, until very recent, until the 1970s, the the policies relating to Aboriginal children. Yeah. yeah. Where children are... Be- and, and this speaks to a kind of... A, a, sl- a blurring of ideas about racial identity, right? That mm. it's... It, that these people can... These groups can be quote-unquote civilised into yeah by they can't ever be quite swedish but they will be able to be at least yeah. a bit more human by possibly. being removed from their communities yeah it's, it's the yeah. Amount. so it's so it's a it's an odd in in many ways i mean it's obviously a horrific policy and it has long and traumatic effects on these communities mm. um and like for example in australia there is still an enormous amount of of kind of unpacking that needs to have done of actually how and why this was done and how it affected people but it also it's it's fundamentally quite an incoherent policy because it's built on ideas about racial difference, but also seems to buy into the idea that that by removing these people from communities and by putting these children into like the proximity to whiteness is yeah. apparently civilizing. You know, it's uh, interesting as well. One of the main head honchos of the Institute of Race Biology or Race Hygiene in Sweden um, married a woman with a murky ethnic background. Mm-hmm. So, and I think his granddaughter has written a book about it, saying mm. that this is, he's, you know, that there's not much you can say about it. He was obviously a raised biologist who mm-hmm. <laughs> believed in racial hierarchies and, and white superiority, but he still managed to have kids that mm. were mm-hmm. mixed or, you know, in his view, probably substandard. But so that's one part of the Swedish story. So that very conservative, very racist, fairly Germanic approach mm-hmm. to um, racial hygiene, as they like to call it, and the the worry of mixing the Nordic race with mm-hmm. any other. Um, and then the kind of opposite side of that same argument is the social democratic mm-hmm. policies. So famously, Alva Myrdal and Gunnar mm-hmm. Myrdal are probably two of the most famous. Swedish yeah. social democratic philosophers mm-hmm. 
in the 20s and 30s. Um, they did a lot of work on population mm-hmm. growth and control and uh, wrote all sorts of recommendations. And they've put these laws in place in Sweden in the 30s that allowed for voluntary sterilization. Mm-hmm. So the, there was a lot of improvement in Sweden. The Social Democrats were in power from 1932 mm-hmm. until 1976. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of improvement during those days, you know, like building a million new houses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, the, for a very small population and stuff. But they, hand in hand with that is the exclusion from the welfare state mm-hmm. from like unwanted elements yeah. and the attempt to minimise those unwanted elements mm-hmm. by offering sterilisations yeah. as a voluntary scheme. Yeah. But there's always an element of coercion. So they couldn't be... They couldn't be forced. You couldn't force sterilization on people. Mm -hmm. But there are instances, very many of them, where Mm -hmm. people have been in prison for, say, uh, being sex workers, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, not... You didn't need a lot of evidence to Mm -hmm. have someone sent down for being a sex worker. And in order for them to be let out, they would have to agree to be sterilized. Mm -hmm. Um, People who were leaving mental asylums. Yeah. And loads of those instances. And there are quite heartbreaking letters from young women in the archives mm-hmm. petitioning the state to reverse mm-hmm. their sterilizations that they didn't realize that they had had, mm-hmm. but they now have married and want to have children and yeah. they can't and mm-hmm. they've been told that they've been sterilized and they want the state to reverse, to reverse it. Mm-hmm. And you can't with women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 90% of the people who got sterilized in Sweden were women. Yes. And this is the other thing about how these policies, again, relate to... It's about it's also about patriarchal control of women's sexual and reproduction abilities, yeah. right? And But it also, again, is another way in which this historically has this kind of murky element to it because at the same time that these conversations are going on about things like forcible sterilisation, this is also the time when women, mostly women, are campaigning for access to contraception. Yeah. And so women like Mary Stopes, for example who, um, you know, after whom the birth, uh, kind of birth control and abortion clinics in, in Britain and internationally are named. You know, she edited a newsletter called Birth Control News, which gave very explicit practical advice to women at a time when this was not, people mm. couldn't access this. She wrote a manual called Married Love in 1918, which is just, <laughs> you know, which which is all about controlling, again, you know, within, within the sort of um, the respectable framework of heterosexual marriage about controlling your you're uh, having children mm. and also just generally actually explained to women what sex was mm. and talked quite explicitly about sex in a way that was just not available to women in this period and you get these you know women are they ideas about population control and particularly you know often about working class population control there's sort of two sides to this argument and it gets it blurs very much at the edges so on one hand you know these campaigners are saying look these working class women are having eight children ten children um, and they can feed three. They can't feed them. They can't afford to look after them. It's also, you know, there is no state health care, so it's expensive to have children. But also, you know, a woman who has ten children in twelve years, from the age of eighteen to thirty-two or whatever, you know, this is doing terrible things to their bodies. Mm. They're dying young. They're exhausted. The risk of dying in childcare is very, very high. Childbirth, sorry, the risk of dying in childbirth is very, very high. Um, you know, we need to help these women to stop having children, mm. and that's obviously, you know, that's an obvious truth. That's that's something that um, kind of family planning campaigners around the world today are campaigning for that women should be allowed to limit family size, mm. but at the same time, it's also an incredibly kind of maternalist, patronising idea about force. Right, we need to stop these women from yeah. having children, and often that's overlaid with anxieties about working the growth the growth of working class communities, and both generally anxieties about well, sort of Malthusian anxieties about population growth. Yeah. We're going to end up with hundreds of people we can't feed. Yeah. But also specifically anxieties about, again, in Britain, the British race being kind of diluted by all these working class people who are being born into, you know, poor homes and malnourished. And what does this do to the British race more generally? Yeah. So there's always this kind of very difficult thing going on there when you're thinking about what these women wanted. And, and certainly, you know, Mary Stopes was a eugenicist who, I mean, she didn't believe in abortion. She thought contraception would be enough. Mm. Um, 
but she was you know fundamentally partly motivated by anxiety about what happens when these working class you know these sort of working class women having all of these children they can't raise properly yeah so there's a very um specific ideal and i think mm -hmm. that but that goes all the way back to the the ideological and i suppose philosophical roots of uh the eugenics movement which Mm -hmm. is all you know it's kind of social darwinism Mm. taking and applied it is i mean it's applied social darwinism yeah um it's slightly later than social Dar- uh, than Darwinism mm-hmm. itself. So it's sort of, I think it's around 1880 that Francis Galton mm-hmm. makes his first publication where he actually defines the term eugenics. He yeah. didn't he didn't invent the science, but he invented the term for it. Yeah, and it's very much it's in both directions. It's a um, idealization of the white male mm-hmm. middle class mm-hmm. person. So it's not just the working classes, it's also the hereditary problems that are visible in the aristocracy. Yes, absolutely. Which I suppose in those those days it would be quite a lot of the hemophilia around yeah. uh, Queen Victoria's mm-hmm. descendants, um, which kind of shows that, you know, people having children with sort of close relations might yes. not necessarily be of beneficial but the middle classes are also kind of ex- exploding and booming mm-hmm. at the end of the mm-hmm. 19th century and with education and work and sort of see themselves as very um much the model mm-hmm. for respectability yeah and no one else is respectable and also, and that has that ties to limited family size right so yeah. like middle class people don't have 10 children mm. but you have limited family size whilst also not really having contraception available and never talking about how mm. you're doing it so like yeah. respect the, the idea about respectable middle class families being having sort of three or four children mm. if you're you know you get married when you're 18 and you have three or four children there's something happening you're doing something right yeah. or, or i mean either you're not doing something or there are steps are being taken mm. for you to only have three children yeah. And clearly steps were being taken if you had enough money mm-hmm. to do it. And I think that's that's part of this incredible heartbreak about all of the working class women who've ended up on the wrong side of, mm-hmm. of these eugenic policies mm-hmm. is that they have been punished and penalised for doing things that middle class women have been getting away with. And this is, I mean, this is always the argument, I mean, recently with the Repeal the Eighth campaign in in the Republic of Ireland, right? The big argument there was, of course, this is available to women who can afford to travel. Mm. Um, and, you know, the general argument with abortion access, which is there is, you cannot stop people from having abortions, you can merely stop people from having safe abortions. Yeah. Well, the same thing really is true of contraception. You can't stop people... Con- I mean, even the rhythm method is a form of contraception, mm. which, you know, was a, a method that many Victorian women were you know thinking about or certainly into the uh particularly catholic women in the 20th century the rhythm method mm. is a method of contraception which is not always that doesn't always work that well um and there's this it's endorsed by the catholic church isn't it it is endorsed by the catholic church <laughs> well it's also i mean there's been this quite recent um controversy with this swedish app hasn't there about oh, yeah, all yeah. these swedish women turning up pregnant in hospital and saying well i was using this app yeah um it turns out the rhythm method not actually that that uh, useful. <laughs> I've actually written an article about that app. I interviewed the founder for mm. The Guardian a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, probably a bit more than that now. And they were saying, because she's been working with an obstetrician mm-hmm. on it, and the obstetrician was saying this is this is a good method for women for whom it wouldn't be a yes. complete disaster to be pregnant. They have on the, um, on the kind of um, tree that you're supposed to use if you want to recommend sort of a medical uh, decision tree for mm. doctors. And if you would be I think the quote is devastated. If you would be devastated by a pregnancy, then it's not for you. Mm. And it's this sort of difficulty of of that. But anyway, you know, there's always... Women have always found ways to limit the number of children that they have, even if the way of doing that is just not having sex with men. Mm. That quite effectively limits the number of children that you have. (laughs) Um, But this kind of conversation about doing it um, kind of systemically or, or building it into kind of state policy... yeah. It's quite interesting because there's there's a lot of overlap between so eugenics as eugenical policies were very big mm-hmm. and very important in the period just preceding during and after the First World War. Mm-hmm. So it it corresponds with the same time that the state is modernising in yeah. 
most sort of westernized countries around the world um and it's i think the two of them are incredibly interlinked mm-hmm. it's about creating a modern population Absolutely. and organizing but it's also um putting you know the hierarchical system in place where the state is actually more mm-hmm. important than the individual absolutely and you know we're both on the left side of the political spectrum so i think both of us kind of <laughs> agree to some point that that that's not necessarily always a bad thing liberalism isn't actually you know having the individual make mm-hmm. all of the choices doesn't actually you know work much better but this is being done to populations mm-hmm. that are not in power yeah, so it's absolutely. being done at a time before we have universal suffrage. Yeah. It's being done to people who have less education, who will not be able to make mm-hmm. uh, consent to a lot of the things that are happening. And, you know, I'm sure that most people were very pleased to get a glass of free milk with school every mm-hmm. day until Thatcher took it away in Britain. In Sweden, they still get their milk in school. Um, but it's it's murky and mm-hmm. it's... It, interlinks all of these problems that we quite often talk about in this podcast with nation idea about people hierarchies racism you know eugenics plays on Mm -hmm. ethnicity and class fears yes and the way that it sort of come the way one of the ways it's reflected in contemporary discourse so we've said you know partly it's about pregnancy advice but also very much the language about things like the quote-unquote problem families. Yeah. So British policies at different points, and this is actually a, a new Labour... Um, problem families is actually a relatively recent thing, and it's, it was a, it's a mm. new Labour idea, but then obviously it's been very embraced by the right. And it's using... It's, it's reflecting ideas that the sort of identification of problem families by the British state has been around for a long time. It's not tied to a particular government. But that, you know, at its heart, which sort of... I mean, you can see this rooted in the development corporations in the 1970s and early 1980s. The idea was supposed to be that there are problem families who kind of disrupt communities or housing estates or whatever. And the idea always inherent in this, that there's something sort of in those families, Mm. that it's not to do with structural inequality and poverty and unemployment and, uh, you know, lack of infrastructural support or no playgrounds or any of the things that might lead to this sort of problem family behaviour. A lot of the state language in Britain about it for the last 20, 30 years has always been that there's something that these families themselves are the problems. Mm. And so particularly a lot of the tabloid language about it, you know, this is why you get so much tabloid anxiety about um, people on benefits with lots of kids. Yeah. It's partly... It's a hereditary argument, right. isn't it? Yeah. But... It's partly... Partly it's about um, conservative anxieties about state spending. Right. Mm. Partly it's about being angry that people are getting, you know, what's perceived as something for nothing. They're being paid by the state. But actually a lot of what's underpinning it is anxiety about eugenics, mm. right? That, that that these poor families are having lots of kids, like feral children. Yeah, they're not breeding well. I mean, yeah. eugenics as a word means like yeah. well-born or well-bred. Exactly. And actually the language, um, you know, the language of breeders, the language of working class women who are stigmatised mm. in this way, they have children you know, the idea that they have children they can't pay for. Yeah. And it, e- eugenics language is really intertwined there with class and race mm. um, in contemporary British discourse very much. Yeah. Um, in a way that's not sort of... You know, there are, other, there are other ways in which you can see the legacies of eugenics and welfare policy that are less explicitly... that are problematic when you drill down, but less explicitly kind of on the face of it problematic. But I think mm. that's, that's one of the areas in British discourse where it's very, very obvious, actually. Yeah that what's at the root of this is real kind of disdain for working class people and ultimately the desire that these communities should be yeah kind of limited or there's some interesting work done by Jonathan Hislop on how the the British working class became white mm-hmm. yeah and that is in the imperial context and particularly anxiety about non-white workers coming and undercutting pay mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think we've, we've sort of touched upon that a little bit when we talked about Brexit and stuff yeah. and the fact that there's this overlapping uh, racism and economic mm-hmm. um, insecurity that neither sort of cancels out the other, but mm-hmm. they <laughs> they're both sort of present, and and people people are talking about it as a sort of white, white working class or identifying the working class of Britain as being white, mm-hmm. 
And that is, it's interesting to think that that's, it's something that started like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. it's, it's a specific political yeah. um, project. Yeah, really, absolutely, definitely. In turning, turning people white. And I think that's also interesting to see in when you look at the US, which a lot of American states had um, sterilization and particularly sterilized what they used to call the feeble-minded. So people mm-hmm. who had... Um, mental disabilities um and i think in like the state of california something like mm-hmm. ninety thousand people were sterilized mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of big big programs but what you see in the u.s is like the waves of immigrants coming in they kind of get racialized even if they're white mm-hmm. so there's a lot of swedes for example this is one of the reasons why sweden was very big on eugenics is because mm-hmm. it has had this emigrant population. Mm-hmm. So the population has plummeted in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, a greater proportion of the population left for the US than in comparison to Ireland. Mm. We all know how many Irish people <laughs> there are in the US. Um, but as they arrived in uh, the US, the Swedes were perceived of as being you know, like the other, mm-hmm. incompetent, mm-hmm. unwanted, mm-hmm. the lowest of the low. And it's as other people start coming, so more immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, that's when the Swedes become whiter workers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's quite, quite that's visible in within the British Empire as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, you talk about mine workers in, in uh, South Africa, you know, that they are being split up into white or Asian Mm -hmm. and then you have the black workers Mm -hmm. so a lot of the um, South African segregation policies and labour policies that then kind of move into the apartheid era which we know more about they are based on this sort of idea that the white working class is more worthy Mm -hmm. yeah than than the other working men and women and that's partly why the state is so invested in policing their behavior right and Mm. and their reproductive behavior that's one of the reasons they have to prove that that they are worthy because you need to keep this this race kind of and then they get that slight sort of tick of approval in the respectability box that no other that no working class man or woman of color Mm -hmm. can get Mm -hmm. so it becomes important to the white worker that they keep their respectability yeah because there is something, there is like a slippery slope down. Yeah. And that's also, of course, why the state is so invested in Britain. I mean, we know this very much in America, but in actually in Britain and in South Africa as well, with policing miscegenation, mm. why they are so, which is um, people of uh, different, you know, people of different ethnicities having children together. Mm. They're, they're so invested in the idea that this is a problem, partly because there's a lot of incredibly... There's a lot of racial science, science in big quote-unquote science, that's used to invoke the idea that this might actually be developmentally problematic. Yeah. Um, there's the example of the mule is always brought up. If a donkey and a horse has a has a has yeah. a, a, a a baby, then that it's that you can't breed any more from mules. I, I've uh, read a really interesting article, which is I don't know, I can't remember who the author is, but we'll put this in our footnotes. Mm-hmm. It's an academic article on. Um, race mixing Mm -hmm. in Liverpool in like the early 20th century and the fact that people believe the general idea was that if you get two races and I'm now doing like air quotes right but if you get two people with different ethnic backgrounds their child will inherit the worst traits yeah yeah yeah. so there's no you know so there's this thing that the aristocracy has got wrong because they have only started to have kids with other people who are like them which has limited the gene pool, which makes bad hereditary um, material mm-hmm. for their children. So the aristocracy is on its way out. But then on the other side, you have people who mix too much. Yeah, and that's also <laughs> and they also problem. get all the bad stuff. And this is it's obviously... just like the idea that a child will inherit yeah. the worst characteristics yeah, exactly. from both parents. It's just yeah, and it's obviously a way incredible. of demarking. You know, the, the it's a way of demarcating races even more aggressively right and saying mm. well you can't breed together because you're different you're, you're fundamentally different mm. and these things that you know and they these get tied in with loads of things so they get tied in for example in the 1940s and 50s and 60s with the rise of developmental psychology mm. and um not specifically john bowlby but people like bowlby and who are you know thinking much more in 
sparked by lots of things, uh, sparked by things like, for example, the experience of children being evacuated. Yeah. There's this huge interest in how children develop, how children's psychology develops. And uh, right, so um, Jordana Belkin's book about um, decolonisation and the welfare state has some really good stuff about this in it. That, um, you know, there's all these anxieties about what happens to children. And, and a lot of this um, is couched in very well-meaning language. Mm. Um, or is, is is presented as if it is um, concern, what yeah. we call now concern trolling, right? The idea that, you know, well, wouldn't it be terribly difficult for your children to be mixed race? You know, not just socially difficult that they're going to sort of face obstacles, but that this might kind of... That there is racism around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that actually that this might cause, you know, particular psychological problems for them. Yeah. There's this real kind of... So that becomes... Which parents are they going to be attached to? Yeah, exactly. And where are they? And that they might sort of sit between two communities or two cultures, because, mm. of course, this is all rooted in the idea that, that these groups are sort of scientifically separate. These communities are separate. You don't have mixing. Yeah. You know, in America, the policing of miscegenation is about partly at least about the if you start to have mixed race children segregation falls down mm. um and the, the same in south africa and the logic behind segregation falls down if if you start to have if you have a large mixed race population mm. because you, you can't police it anymore it becomes very very difficult and you can see this even in the language around in america around barack obama's heritage yeah right this kind of constant around well you know what does what does he count as what Mm. what what, who is he this sort of anxiety about sort of um racial belonging yeah that everyone needs to have one box that they fit exactly and and you know of course if you if you're trying to build a society on white supremacy people having children and obviously this is also very gendered it's always a huge amount of anxiety particularly about white women having children with black men or men of color more generally Mm. um you know it undermines white supremacy yeah um so that you know there's lots of things kind of tied up in this yeah that's (sighs) cheery notes i mean we're happy to to take questions from anyone who thinks that we need to explain something a bit further but i think we should have a poem possibly if there is have you found a eugenic poem (laughs) i have so i was um not necessarily a eugenic poem i had i've got kind of a recommendation for a book of poems and then and then a standard poem that i will read in the normal in the normal way so the recommendation for the book of poems is just um to flag up that there's this brilliant book by ruth padell um called darwin a life in poems which is um, a book that she wrote about Charles Darwin. It's based on a lot of research. It's based on a lot of primary ideas. And the reason, obviously, we've talked a little bit about social Darwinism in this, but mm. Darwin is also uh, Francis Galton's cousin. Yeah. And a lot of the ideas about eugenics, you know, you can see them kind of having conversations and things about this and Darwin's scientific past. So I think it's... I really like it as a as a project of poetry. I think it's a really interesting kind of approach. It's a good book. So I wanted to kind of flag that as an interesting thing about this. Yeah. The poem I actually have um, got uh, is about genes, um, G-E-N-E-S, not, not <laughs> denim. Um, it's by Jane Hirschfield, and it's called My Proteins. And it starts, they have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, natruretic polypeptide B, uh, and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure and heat. And she says, 90% of my cells, they have discovered, are not my own person. They are other beings inside me, as 96% of my life is not my life. Yet I, they say, am they, my bacteria and yeasts, my father and mother, grandparents, lovers, drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges. My proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. So it's a it's a really interesting poem, I think, because she's talking about the ways in which kind of identity is constructed. And yeah. maybe the difference between what scientifically makes you up. You know, yeah. scientists will tell you there are these cells, there are these things, and actually how you fit into kind of how you conceive of that as a person. We'll put that on our footnotes on the we website will. as well. Um, and our recommendations for this <laughs> this episode is going to be books targeted to pregnant women. Yes, or but, women or generally. But women yes, generally about but pregnancy. About pregnancy. Um, and I think it's it, that's quite interesting because there's been. Is it just like the last five years mm-hmm. or something? There's been like a very tiny explosion, but still mm-hmm. an explosion of books that actually challenge the perceived ideas about yeah. pregnancy and fertility and women's roles and women's um, obligations within these. Mm-hmm. So what have you got? So I'm recommending a book um, by Emily Oster called Expecting Better. 
And the subtitle of this book is Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. And I have been dipping in and out of reading this book for a while. I'm not pregnant, I should <laughs> maybe point out, I don't know. Um, but it's a really interesting book. Emily Oster is an economist, and I think we might have talked about this actually, this book on an earlier episode. Yeah, about I think pregnancy. one of the bodies. She is an economist and she got very angry when she was thinking about having children. So when she was, I think, you know, it's something that you maybe start to think about or some women start to think about increasingly as they get older and lots of questions about, you know, what at what point, um, you know, there's lots of anxieties that are fed by women's magazines and by the NHS and by other things about, for example, you know, you should have Tabloid babies. Headlines. Yes, you know, women's fertility, you need to have children before you're 35 or mm. huge numbers of tabloid headlines about women leaving it too late or selfish mm. women who are obsessed with their career and don't have children. And then kind of about being pregnant more generally. And so as an economist, she got really annoyed that it was very difficult in pregnancy books and in books about conception and things to find the actual science. You're constantly just talked at and told these things, but you're not really given the evidence for these things. This is what Tom Watson said about diabetes. Exactly. And so she, uh, as an economist, went and read a bunch of papers on lots of different things. So the book starts with conception um, and or deciding when to have children. So she explodes some of the myths about age, for example. Mm. Um, there's not really any evidence, for example, that every year from 18 women's fertility declines and you need to get on it straight away and yeah she kind of thinks about that quite critically and she thinks about a lot of the um evidence for example about whether it's okay to drink alcohol when you're trying to conceive um and then she goes through various other things so caffeine consumption for example i know that she went through and read a lot of studies and pointed out for example that women in sweden are given much higher yeah. Oh, we're allowed to drink a lot more coffee than women in Britain. Yeah. And she sort of looked at the data and went, well, there's nothing that says that women in Sweden are pre genetically disposed to being better at dealing with caffeine. <laughs> so this probably means that British women can also drink lots of caffeine. Yeah. She's, actually, she's actually American, so she's she's often using the American guidelines. So it's in, it, it's interesting. I'm sure it's a very useful book if you are pregnant, because she's, it's very clear and it has lots of very specific information actually about what the evidence is for things mm. like, can you drink alcohol? Might be a very frustrating read for someone who is in contact with yes. <laughs> with maternity services, though, which aren't always very evidence-based. Yeah. But it's also very interesting for me as someone who's interested in these questions about feminism and women's agency and bodies, mm. um, you know, just about what it says about the way pregnant women are treated and yeah. the, the difference between, the, the sort of distance between the evidence that we actually have and the advice that is actually given to women. Yeah, It is very frustrating, but it's a good book to read, I think. Yeah, my recommendation is actually going to be a Swedish book, but I know that it's been um, translated least into Italian. I think, I'm pretty sure I've seen it in Polish as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's by um, a paediatrician, Cecilia Shrapkowska, and a uh, professor of immunology, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, also a medic um, called Agnes Vold, who I think I spoke about in a much earlier episode, because she's the one who has... Um, informed me lots of other people about this thing about breastfeeding and drinking alcohol right yeah the fact that even if you're so drunk that you're in a coma mm -hmm. from alcohol abuse your child would still be getting less alcohol from the breast milk than you would from a uh like fruit yogurt or like a 0.5 mm percent -hmm. beer or something yes because your breast milk is at the same alcohol blood al alcohol as your blood alcohol yeah level, right so yeah so there's like it's barely traceable it's mm -hmm. traceable but it's not going to affect anyone um the book is called practica for blivande föräldrar which will be very helpful for most of our listeners but it's it's a sort of practical guide for is that what it translates parents. to yeah. yeah um and it is very helpful they do they're very clear on what type of evidence there is mm -hmm. and the different thresholds for different scientific studies and yeah. how you can you know, and we also in an earlier episode spoke about the fact that, that of course you can't do a lot of yeah. clinical testing on pregnant women. You can't have a group of women who are being fed three bottles of wine a day mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then see what happens to their kids. It's yeah. just you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of it is not ethical the way you would normally run. Yeah, you can't tests, have a control right? group of pregnant women who are like being denied folic acid or exactly. whatever to see whether it I works. Mean, so there, there's loads of things like that. But what they do is that they're very clearly pointing out just what the evidence is. So mm -hmm. that thing I said about before about um, beef being mm -hmm. safe to eat, rare, 
is from this book, mm-hmm. for example. They also talk about the breastfeeding and alcohol. They talk about alcohol in pregnancy, mm-hmm. saying just what you said, that there is no evidence that and it's it, a blanket sort of reaction that all pregnant women have that they the alcohol transfers to the bod- to the bodies of the fetuses and that that's going to harm them forever. They also, and this is because they are Swedish doctors and they work and operate in the Swedish system, they are very good at pointing out exactly the kind of eugenic... They don't really mention the word as far as I remember, but they're very good at pointing out the kind of eugenic roots of a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So the Swedish recommendations for what to eat when you're pregnant doesn't always have to do with what a pregnant woman needs Mm -hmm. but it's to do with installing healthy eating habits in a big group of the population at a time when they're very receptive to advice right yeah which is (laughs) which is quite a lot of what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. in this episode Mm -hmm. isn't it that you kind of get people you mold them a little bit when they're at their most receptive yes and women are of course much more receptive when we're pregnant because we are worried and protective I mean, the, the thing about uh, British women give it, being given vouchers, women on benefits were given vouchers to buy fresh fruit and vegetables. I remember reading um, at the time a woman, someone pointing out that actually fetuses are really efficient at getting the nutrients from you that they yeah, need. Yeah. Um, if you have a terrible diet, you will probably suffer from it as a pregnant woman, but only because the fetus is so efficient at harvesting all of the vitamins and minerals and, and everything else yeah. that they need from your blood. So The pregnant woman's teeth will fall out because yeah. the baby is nicking all the stuff to Exactly, because babies love calcium. So so a lot of these things... I mean, so obviously it's it's not... You know, it would be good that pregnant women's teeth don't fall out and that yeah. they do have enough calcium. <laughs> but at the same time, this is often framed around, you know, you need to do this because it's best for your baby. And that's yeah. a way of playing on emotion and guilt rather yeah. than saying you know rather than just you know the reason that the british government gives women vouchers for free fruit and vegetables is respectability politics mm. it's because um they don't fundamentally in britain it's not very respectable to eat ready meals and it's very respectable to cook food from scratch every night that's what they're mm. doing they're trying to mold women who cook vegetables in yeah. their in their house it's it's nothing to do really with vitamins mm. um so Yes, that sounds very interesting. I think our books fit together. I think essentially we've we've recommended a Swedish and English language version of oh, pretty much quite similar thing. books. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think maybe you should all just take the Swedish book and Google Translate it. It's mm-hmm. quite interesting. But yeah, the links to eugenics in particular is um, quite scary, but but um, illuminating. Great. And on. So we don't actually have a set date for the next episode, but it will be coming sometime during the spring. Yes. But we are on Twitter as always and on Facebook Absolutely. and stuff. So if you follow us there, we're at T and K Pod, you'll get the first alert that something's up. Tomorrow we're gonna never... do we're gonna do episodes on food, I think, and yeah. anything else. If anyone has any suggestions what you want us to talk yeah. about, feel free to get in touch. We will definitely put out a query for what you'd like us to think about after. Mm, and what you would like us to recommend. What you'd like us to recommend and what you'd like us to talk about after our break. Obviously, um, as a feminist podcast, Tomorrow Never Knows has a very, just a, a parental leave policy that as as it should be. Uh, and so we I decide will, when we do stuff. Yes, we will come, we will come, we will organise um, our next episode at some point. But, yeah. but until then, you'll find us on our personal accounts on Twitter as well. As I'm Eleanor, I am your Lots of Lydia. Lots of Lydia. At Pod, we have our website, whenevernosepod.com. Yeah. The newsletter is there. Mm-hmm. But that's it for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.